Welcome to the Armani Talk show. I'm your host, Armani Talks. If you are listening from podcast, uh, sit back and enjoy. Hopefully this is for a long car ride so you can listen throughout the entire episode. And if you're watching from YouTube, be sure to hit that subscribe button right on below, hit that bell notification, and never miss another video again. In today's talk, I'm going to be speaking about a variety of different topics. And some of the topics are going to range from uh, soft skills, public speaking, creativity, a lot of the soft skills that the Armani Talks brand covers. There was uh, a unique situation that I normally have. The situation is where every four to six months, I need to find a new barber. The reason why is because I believe that I have the perfect barber. I'm like, Joey, you are my guy. And time and time again, within the third to the sixth month, they start to get a little too comfortable. And that's when their haircut begins to get sloppy. Well, yesterday was the beginning of a new period. And I started to um, look for a new barber. I met this gentleman named Raul. Once I went to the barber area, he was the only guy working. He was wrapping up someone else's haircut, and he's like, hey, you. He's looking at me. Uh, Did you make an appointment? I said, no, walk in. He said, all right, give me 15 more minutes. So 15 minutes later, this guy begins to cut up uh, my hair, and he's looking at it, and he's like, hey, where'd you get your haircut before? I told him. And he said, whoever cut your hair before did an awful job. I said, well, geez, man. I mean, the guy that cut it before worked here. And he's like, hey, uh, I'm not going to say anything. But was it this guy? And he points at the chair where I got my hair cut last. And unfortunately, I ended up snitching and said, it was that guy. And that's when Raul, my barber, was like, see, this guy doesn't understand the art of haircutting. Let me actually show you what he did wrong with your hair. What's your name? I was like, Armani's my name. He's like, let me show you, Armani, what he did wrong to your hair. And he starts getting this mirror and he starts angling the mirror in different uh, places where he believed that my hair was done an injustice. Around the back of my head, he's like, you see this line? It showed that he cut it too small here. If I was the one cutting it, I would have left that part long. And what about here? He angles the camera, excuse me, the mirror on the uh, the top of my head. And he's like, you see this? I was like, yeah. He said, you have a cowlick. If I were that barber, I would have left that part longer. So, you know, when you're combing your hair, it's not sticking up. And as he's over here breaking everything down, eventually I asked him, how do you know all of this? I get it. You're a barber. But it seems as though you think about cutting hair in a completely different way. And that's when he starts to break it down. He was in the medical profession for a very long time. And then once he was set to work as, I believe he said, a nurse, he decided that that was not for him. He was living in Puerto Rico for a certain period of time. And he used to cut other people's hair in Puerto Rico. And he said, haircutting is something that I enjoy doing. So by the time he finished his medical degree, rather than getting a medical job, 
he enrolled himself into barber school. He starts to explain the whole process of what it's like to be a barber. You have to get the practical side right. You have to take exams, which apparently he was good in both of it. And eventually, he started to cut hair. He always did it. But eventually, after barber school, he started to understand the science of it. And as he was breaking that down, I thought that was pretty fascinating because that's what my journey with public speaking was like. I mean, for a long time, I didn't like to give speeches. That was one of the things that I would run away from consistently. But by the time I went to Toastmasters, what happened was they just threw you into the fire. Toastmasters is a public speaking club. It's global. So I'm sure wherever you're listening from, uh, you will have a club near you. They just threw me in the fire. They said, start to give uh, speeches. And I'm looking around. No one's going to teach me how to give speeches. No, you'll figure it out over time. And that's exactly what I uh, did. I started to give speeches, bulldozed uh, past analysis paralysis. And eventually, I started to uh, work with this one public speaking coach. And from there, he started to teach me the theory. He's like, Armani, every now and then, you got to understand the audience that you're working with. Because one thing that I would do every now and then was I would open a speech by doing one of those raise your hand scenarios. Raise your hand if you like dogs. Raise your hand if you hate dogs. And my public speaking coach was like, look, Armani, uh, for certain audiences, they don't like that. They don't like it when you make them do anything before you have earned their trust. It feels like you're manipulating them. I thought, for real? I would have never have thought that. And just like that, my public speaking coach um, made my move um, a little bit more precise. And that's exactly how a lot of these mentoring positions should work. Recently, I wrote a tweet which went like, um, unless you can ask laser precise questions, don't go looking for a mentor. Chances are you have not gathered enough experiences and you have not failed enough. Because think about a mentor. What are we really going to the mentor for? Are we asking them the basic general questions? If you're trying to learn more about affiliate marketing, are you going to go to a mentor and be like, how do you set up a WordPress site? The thing is, a lot of folks are going to move like that, especially if they have not failed enough in the very beginning stages. So Raul, my barber, he was at that point where he was cutting people's hair for a long time in Puerto Rico. And by cutting their hair in Puerto Rico, he was able to gather a lot of raw data. And in barber school, that raw data was polished up over time. And it was the same exact thing with public speaking. It's very uh, general at first. You're doing a whole bunch of different motions. And over time, you are making it more and more precise. See, this is exactly why I believe that you should do your best to watch yourself back on tape. Uh, this is one thing that I learned uh, a lot of Toastmasters clubs don't do, where they're recording your speeches. Uh, but the reason that we should have our speeches recorded is because when we are watching ourselves back on tape, we are engaging this thing known as the, wait for it, psychoneuromuscular theory, which basically indicates that visuals of yourself has a tremendous effect on your nervous system. 
Floyd Mayweather, Tom Brady, Kobe Bryant, all engage in the psychoneuromuscular theory. And if we can properly understand this theory, uh, the world of athletics and the world of communication skills merge with one another. Within one of my Toastmasters clubs, there was this a sweet old lady named Sue. Sue and Frank were the senior members within our organization. And uh, it was funny because Sue would always yell at Frank. Uh, Frank was uh, this, uh, I called him the doofus. He was a great speaker, but he was the doofus whenever he was around Sue. And Sue was the pioneer. She was the visionary. She was the one that was consistently bringing the camera to our meetings. And every now and then, people would challenge Sue. They'd be like, Sue, no one's going to be watching these speeches. Why are you recording all of them for? And Sue had a very simple response. She said, maybe one day one of these speakers would like to watch themselves speak. This was a great way to think about it because I was one of those speakers. Ever since I started the Armani Talks YouTube channel, every now and then your boy doesn't have uh, an idea, right? I'm thinking, well, what am I going to talk about today? I'm shooting blanks. And that's when I had a light bulb moment. How about you go looking for all those speeches that you didn't Toastmasters before? You know, the ones that Sue was recording. So I'm over here trying to trace down her YouTube channel. I'm trying to type in all these different keyword phrases that could possibly lead me to her channel. And eventually, I found Sue's channel. Ugh. I saw some of these old school speeches and I was cringing. I was like, oh, no, man, I don't like this at all. Um, but oh well, because I have nothing to post for today in the Armani Talks YouTube channel. And today is one of my posting days. How about I get one of those cringe worthy videos and I post it on the YouTube channel and I could prove to myself, hey, buddy, Rather than being embarrassed, you should feel proud because it goes on to show how far you have come. And that's exactly what happened. Um, and nowadays, it's not just the old school videos, but the new school videos as well. And not just videos, by the way, um, podcasts, blogs, anything that I create, I try to consume it back. And earlier, I said that uh, when you're consuming your own content back, uh, this is where communication skills and athleticism aligns because a lot of athletes consume their content back to refine their movements. But another way to look at it is that this is where communication skills and technology meet eye to eye. How, you may be asking? Here's how. Artificial intelligence and big data have a synergistic relationship with one another. The reason why is because a lot of traditional computers cannot process the gargantuan amounts of data known as big data uh, nowadays. So we need advanced infrastructure to process this big data. Where are we going to get this advanced infrastructure? Through artificial intelligence. This is where big data can get processed by artificial intelligence. And the more data that you give AI, the more precise that the AI becomes. This is exactly how smart cars work. Um, not only are a lot of these um, drivers uh, driving and giving the artificial intelligence more data, 
they're also getting into more accidents. And any time an accident happens, as bizarre as it may seem, it's good. It's good because it is giving the uh, artificial intelligence more data on what not to do. So think about it. Accidents are good when you're trying to make um, the artificial intelligence smarter. All data is good. You see, uh, that's why nowadays they say, he who owns the data is king. Before it was oil, but nowadays it's data. And this is something that we need to learn, especially when we're trying to improve communication skills. Because a lot of these old school speeches, uh, these videos, these podcasts that we're consuming back, a lot of them are going to have accidents in it. Sometimes we're trying to consume it back and our body is fighting us. Understand this, our body is used to seeing life from first perspective, not third. It's like when you're seeing yourself on tape, it's like your, your brain is saying, oh man, what is going on? No, 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 make it stop, right? That's why your body is feeling a certain type of way. But what you want to view it as is that you are consuming the content, aka big data, and you are giving it to your smart artificial intelligence, aka nervous system. And the more that you are consuming the content back, good, bad, and the ugly, the smarter that your nervous system is getting. This is how great communicators become greater over time. And this is something that we have to always practice. Because with communication skills, it's one of those things where becoming smarter is not always a good thing. Uh, becoming smarter can actually be a very bad thing. And allow me to give you an example. Imagine that there is this uh, one speaker who has this riveting talk on why guns are bad. Okay, He talks about why no one should own guns. It's something that should only be reserved for police officers, and that's about it. And throughout this talk that he's over here building on why guns are bad, he's charging it with emotions. He's giving a lot of stories. He's talking about situations where there's a little boy who snuck into his um, dad's room, found his dad's gun, played around with it a little too much, and shot himself in the head. Okay, This speaker is creating one of the most fascinating anti-gun talks you could possibly imagine. Soon, these lobbyists for uh, anti-guns, these politicians for anti-guns are contacting this speaker. Okay, Let's call the speaker Randy, by the way, just so I don't have to keep calling him the speaker. So Randy, the gun hater, is, is having a career renaissance. He's getting booked for speech after speech after speech, and he just has to keep giving the same talk. At this point, after uh, giving this talk, 50 times all around the U.S., he's building conviction in this talk until one day something happens. Randy is uh, chilling at his place late at night. He's about to go to sleep. He's in his master bedroom on the second floor, and he's reading his Kindle. He's starting to get more and more drowsy. This Kindle book is putting him to sleep. He's about to fall asleep until the windows downstairs shatter. What the heck was that? Not only do the windows shatter, now he can hear someone sneaking in through the window. 
oh no, Randy is getting robbed. Just like that, Randy goes to his closet, he picks up his baseball bat, but rather than going downstairs, he hides under his bed. And as he's hiding under his bed, he's clutching onto this baseball bat, but he's terrified. He doesn't know what the heck is going on. He's trying to call 911, and he's over here talking, and the person that he's getting, the receptionist who eventually connects you to the uh, cop, is asking Randy all of these questions. Randy's like, just shut up and send someone over. This lady is now showing an attitude. She's like, hey, mister, I'm just doing my job. And he's over here just giving her more and more data as he's whispering until uh, he hears footsteps coming up the stairs. That's when Randy uh, hangs up the call. He turns the phone off just so it doesn't ring when the robber is upstairs. And he just uh, is lying under the bed in silence. This is when the robber uh, comes into his master bedroom. And now all Randy can see are feet. This robber, he's wearing boots. He's shuffling left and right, strategically stealing certain uh, uh, parts of um, Randy's property. Randy is terrified. What if this robber, who most likely has a gun, looks under the bed? What's going to happen? This baseball bat that Randy has is going to save him, right? But Randy doesn't have any confidence in this baseball bat. He's just praying that something happens. He's praying and praying and praying until he starts to lose sight of what's happening. Later on, he has his vision coming back. And as his vision is coming back, there's three cops that's surrounding him. And suddenly, the cops' words are becoming clearer and clearer. The cops are saying, Sorry, bud. Um, you just got robbed. Uh, the robber did get away. We're currently looking for him. Okay? You are safe. Randy is patting himself just to make sure he's actually safe. And he realizes he is safe. But he sees something else. He sees this baseball bat, which prior to him getting robbed, he thought was going to keep him safe. But now, as he's looking at this baseball bat, he doesn't have as much confidence as he once did. But wait, what would have given him more confidence? He doesn't want to tell anyone, but he thinks a gun would have given him more confidence. But no, no, no. Randy is the anti-gun guy. He shouldn't have uh, had a gun with him. Actually, it's good that he had the baseball bat with him. Because with the baseball bat, it activated his logical brain that allowed him to go under uh, the bed. And if he had a gun, what would have happened was he would have tried to act like a cowboy. He would have gone downstairs and tried to have a shoot-off with this robber. But the baseball bat uh, allowed cooler heads to prevail. Right? Randy keeps trying to convince himself that. The baseball bat allowed cooler heads to prevail. That moment changed Randy. Nowadays, whenever he's being asked to give that same talk, he does not give it with the same conviction that he once did. Because nowadays, a new path has been introduced. Sure, uh, the guns are still not good, according to Randy's worldview. 
But nowadays, there's another path that says guns are good. Heck, guns would have given him more confidence lying under the bed that night rather than a bat. Now, this is a very strong example, but this example should show something. When you're learning and when you're getting smarter, what happens is that you are being introduced to newer realities. And as you're being introduced to newer realities, it's harder to speak with conviction. Because with Randy's scenario, when he was over here just hating on guns, there was only one thing that existed, one path. And due to him having one path, he could just keep going forward on this particular path consistently. But soon as a new path was introduced, what happened was nowadays, Randy began to second-guess himself. And this is something that you will consistently see in a lot of these uh, debates, okay? You'll see that the dumb guy is speaking with the most conviction, while the smart guy sounds pretty unsure. He is always talking sort of like this, is always looking off into space. Uh, whenever your eyes are facing in a certain angle, it means you're thinking. Why is he always doing that while the other guy, the dumb guy, is speaking with conviction. It's because the smarter person has a um, bigger decision tree. And due to having a bigger uh, decision tree, they need to sift through more information before they can formulate a response. This is why um, communication skills, it's not something that you just are one and done on, where you think you are good, and now you're like, okay, I'm not going to practice anymore. I'm not going to practice articulating my ideas out loud. Because what's going to happen is that you're most likely still going to be consuming more information. The world doesn't stop. You're still gathering uh, more experiences in life, right? And if you are not in the habit of articulating your ideas out loud, what happens is that you start to second-guess yourself more. Okay, the delivery sounds sloppy. Despite you getting smarter, the delivery still sounds sloppy. So I have a very simple philosophy. I treat communication skills like I treat brushing my teeth. I know every single day I'm going to brush my teeth, and I know every single day I'm going to do something communication skills related. And I don't mean so in the social sense, where I'm sending a text to someone. That's something that is already ingrained in society. I don't consider that to be what I'm talking about. What I do consider uh, to uh, be active communication skills practice is this, for example. This is getting me in the habit. And by this, I mean podcasting. Podcasting is getting me in the habit of uh, getting my mind, focusing on certain thoughts, and putting these thoughts into words. That's all communication skills is. And uh, that's not all I do. I also write. I also have a newsletter, armanitalks.com slash newsletter. Sign up. Uh, I drop daily short stories on soft skills. I do want to emphasize daily. Okay? And someone may eventually think, well, how do you always have things to talk about? I've actually seen a lot of smart people um, propose this objection. They'll say something like, well, eventually I'm going to run out. And this is where I want to introduce one of my ideas to you. I call it steal from yourself. This is a content creation hack that only a few people can do, by the way. 
The only people that can steal from themselves are the people that have a library. So if you wrote three blogs, two tweets, and have two YouTube videos, that's not enough. I'm talking a bigger catalog. Uh, so me, for example, I have roughly 500 blogs, 600 podcasts, 1,000 YouTube videos, uh, 2,000 newsletters. I got my body of work. Let's just put it like that. So every now and then when I'm shooting blanks and I don't have an idea, what I can do is I can steal from myself. And what this means is I'll choose a certain content piece that I was somewhat dissatisfied with or somewhat intrigued by. Let's choose dissatisfaction. Uh, there was this one time that I uh, created this podcast that was roughly 10 minutes long. And as I was wrapping up this podcast, I thought, man, this is way too long, dude. You were rambling a lot. You could have actually made this podcast four minutes long. So I was dissatisfied with it. That's when I thought, okay, I am dissatisfied with it, which means that this is a contender for me to steal from. What can I do? And this is when I thought, how about I get the four minutes worth of points from this podcast and turn it into a newsletter? And that's exactly what I did. I turned it into a newsletter. I stole from myself. Another example is uh, there was this one time I broke down in a logical sort of way why discipline is good for you. One of the things that we often say when someone is feeling sad or, or beat up in life is, go, go ahead, buddy, relax. But my advice is when you're feeling beat up by life, you should be even more disciplined. You should go back to your routine because that is your safe haven. And I'm trying to logically make a case for this. You see? So this content piece intrigued me because it was a logical case for discipline rather than one of those rah-rah speeches. So I thought, how can I steal from this content piece? And I thought, okay, thus far you gave a logical breakdown of why discipline will help you. How about this time you tell a story? Tell a story about a time when discipline helped you in your life. So this logical skeleton becomes uh, a skeleton with flesh and bones. So the more that you understand the principle of stealing from yourself, which only a rare few people can do, because you need a catalog, you need a library, what happens is that you'll realize that ideas lead to more ideas, which lead to more ideas and more ideas. That's exactly how it works. And this works beautifully with one of the ideas we were talking about before, where you practice communication skills forever. You treat it like brushing your teeth. When you treat communication skills like brushing your teeth, and you combine that with the idea of stealing from yourself, these two ideas are synergistic in nature. The more ideas that you create, the more that you practice your communication skills, the more that you practice your communication skills, the more ideas that you create, ideas that uh, intrigue you or dissatisfy you, which are contenders for more ideas that you can steal from, from yourself. See, I always hear the uh, quote, a great artist steal. And I understand the merit behind this quote. Uh, a lot of uh, smart individuals throughout their life have uh, referred to this quote, great artists steal. I have a remix to this. I think great artists steal from others, but I think legendary artists steal from themselves. Legendary artists, what they do is they realize 
all these different content pieces that they're creating have a life of their own. So rather than only looking at the outside world, why don't they look at their own creations? I don't know why more people don't think like this. More people have this very weird mentality towards creativity. Their whole viewpoint on creativity is very rigid, in my opinion. Um, nowadays, and I don't even want to hate on anyone, but I got to. I get so many DMs from people that want to ghostwrite. So like Armani talks, I really like what you say. And here's why I could be your ghostwriter. I think getting a ghostwriter is one of the, let me be kind with it. And nah, actually, screw it. I think it is one of the most repulsive things you can do. I think from running a content business, the one thing you should never outsource is the process of creating ideas. And when you outsource that, it is going to harm you. I mean, we're seeing what's happening with Disney right now. Um, Disney, um, if you ever read Walt Disney's biography, you'll see his mindset versus when you read Bob Iger's uh, autobiography. You'll see his mindset where Walt Disney was a creator. That was what got him going. He loved to see uh, drawings turn into animations, animations turn into films, films turn into toys. He loved the process of creating. Where when you read Bob Iger's autobiography, you'll see that he's more of an acquirer. He loves to um, uh, do big acquisitions. He bought Marvel. He bought uh, George Lucas's studio. And George Lucas... Uh, the thing with him, if you really understand George Lucas, the guy that uh, created Star Wars, he's like Walt Disney. He's a creator. So when he sold his Star Wars company uh, to Disney, I thought that was I thought that was a bad move because he's still at the core of it, an artist. And I'm like, man, you sold out like that, dude. I can't believe it, man. And by the way. I'm not a big Star Wars guy. I don't watch Star Wars like that. I just am looking at George Lucas. It's like, how could you do that, man? Don't you understand what Disney is going to do? Disney does not care about the storyline of Star Wars like you do. So what Disney is doing is they're always getting these different writers. They're outsourcing a lot of the, uh, the plots. And nowadays, what's happening is that due to Star Wars already having a fan base, People are still going to watch Star Wars, but they're watching a watered-down Star Wars. And that's exactly what happens when you allow someone else to ghostwrite for you. When you allow someone else to ghostwrite for you, they are taking away the essence of your brand. Uh, and you're taking away the essence of your brand as well. Because during the process of creation, you are learning the art of creating your own voice. You see what works you see what doesn't work. You see, okay, I could take these type of risks with my content. Well, I learned whenever I drop a curse word, uh, foreign audiences for some reason find this funnier than uh, native audiences. Why is this, right? You get to figure out these micro nuances when you're creating your own content. Now, here's the thing. I will outsource a lot of things. Like I have no problem outsourcing the graphic design. By the way, all these graphic designs, I actually draw it out myself. So I don't even know if I could fully outsource that. One thing that you will realize is that the process of creating is a very active process in many ways. And it's one of those things that run counterintuitive to a lot of business advice. Because 
for a lot of these business advice, most folks are saying outsource everything. Where, let's say hypothetically, I want uh, Limit Breaker. For those of you guys listening, I'm pointing to my book, uh, Limit Breaker: 101 Short Stories, Essays, and Insights to Improve Your Communication Skills, which is currently available on Amazon. So, if I tell a graphic designer, "Hey," Make me a book cover called Limit Breaker. That's not enough. I have to get uh, precise with my description. He's going to need an idea. He's going to ask, what else? Now, if you're one of these novices who doesn't know anything, and you're like, oh, well, uh, you know, it, that's your job, right? You figure out what else. That's not going to be enough, especially if you are self-published. When you're self-published, you need to manage the entire workflow or at least understand it. So I'll say something like, okay, give me a quick second. Let me draw this out. So I will draw it out. And by the way, I suck at drawing. And that doesn't matter how much I suck at drawing. I just need to get a concept and put it into the designer's mind. Okay, I could try explaining it too. I could say, hey, um, I want something with the earth and I just want Limit Breaker and the subtitle and my name. Um, okay, and often that would be enough. But other times you're trying to explain it with words, but it's not enough. Uh, sometimes you need to actually draw it. And that is when you get more confidence regarding what you are creating, when you could draw something. This is an underrated public speaking hack, by the way, but every now and then you want to try to draw your speech. I know this one guy that would write every single word in his speech. I recall one time we were both um, competing for the Toastmasters um, competition. Um, and as we were competing, my process is completely different. I believe uh, that you should just articulate the speech out loud and keep polishing it over time. And you delivered the polished version on speech day. So I don't write anything down. But my buddy, he wrote down his entire speech and he's just reading it uh, left and right before we're about to get called on stage. And I'm looking at what he's doing. And to me, that's torture. I mean, you're about to speak in front of 100 people or so, and you're over here reading and flooding your mind with more thoughts. Why? So instead of doing what this guy did, you want to draw your speech. And you really know that you know your speech when you can draw it. Now, this is not going to be something that happens immediately. Okay? This is something that you're going to actually have to practice. So if you cannot draw your speech from the very get-go, don't be like, oh, see, it's not working for me. Keep practicing. Uh, figure out what you need to draw in the first place. And once you figure out what to draw, draw it. It doesn't matter if it's stick figures. It's the concept that matters. And then draw it some more. Draw it some more. And eventually, you will get what is known as a storyboard. A lot of famous directors, they have a thing called the storyboard, uh, where they're just uh, creating the big concepts for their story just so the other folks can be on the same page, okay? So you are creating storyboards for your speech. I think this is way better than you writing the entire speech because when you have the storyboards, aka a visual representation of your speech in your mind, what you can do is you can adjust quicker. Every now and then when you get on stage, you practiced your speech in a certain way. You decided to open with a certain words 
you decided to transition with certain words. But, you know, in the speech, during the heat of the moment, you lost track of one of the transitions. And rather than panicking, uh, there's this image that just gets flashed in your mind. And that image will allow you to get back on track. So that's a public speaking hack right there. Try to draw your speech. And drawing is uh, a lot of fun. And I believe uh, drawing is one of those things that allows you to see that art and engineering are not that different from one another. I don't mean to toot my own horn, but I'm a pretty good drawer. Uh, more specifically, I'm very good at drawing things with just a pencil. I can't do painting or with charcoal, oil painting, none of that. You just give me a pencil and paper and I can draw you. And I will make it look exactly like you. Uh, it'll take me some time. Uh, but uh, there was this one lesson that Miss Toussaint, my art teacher from uh, when I was a little kid, gave me that changed my perspective forever. When I was initially trying to draw a, a face, I was taking a very reductionist approach to it. I was trying to create one eye. I was trying to make it as perfect as I possibly could. Uh, then I moved over to the nose. Uh, then I moved over to the other eye. Then I moved over to the lips. And I'm making these individual parts perfect, right? Uh, then eventually I made the face, uh, the hair, the ears, etc. I'm thinking that this art is going to look amazing. But by the time that I'm done, this art looks like trash. And I'm shocked. I can't believe that I spent all this time to create trash. Miss Toussaint comes to my desk and she's like, how's it going, Armani? And I said, not good at all, Miss Toussaint. This looks like trash. And that's when she realized, oh, wait, Armani wasn't here last week. Last week, I taught the students how to really draw. And that's when she started to give me a summary of last week. She said, Armani, rather than trying to create one eye, one nose, one eye at a time, what you want to first do is you want to create an upside down egg. Okay? Once you create the upside down egg, you want to uh, cro cross a line right down the middle and to the side. And from there, you just plug in the eyes, the nose, the lips, and such. Okay? Because an upside down egg resembles a human face. You don't need it to be perfect. You just need it to resemble, and then you can refine over time. And when she taught me that, it just made the entire process so much easier. It's like, rather than focusing on these tiny little parts, focus on the big picture first, and then focus on the tiny little parts. But more importantly, it taught me that there were certain frameworks to creating art. For the longest time, whenever I would go to these circuses where they would draw a portrait of you, I thought they just did it from raw inspiration and that was about it. But Miss Toussaint showed me that no, nothing is uh, just from raw inspiration. Sure, that happens at times. But if you want to be consistent, you need to understand frameworks. And she taught me that framework. And that is the framework I know as artistic engineering. Artistic engineering. I believe that this is something that we need to bring um, back. You study any of the people from the Renaissance era, you'll notice that they were not just artists. They were not just engineers. They were half artist and half engineer. And I believe one of the ways we can do that is by not trying to identify too much with one side. 
And this often happens. If you're someone who's very artistic, you may look down on the technical folks. And you see this in small companies. You may not be able to tell this in big companies because a lot of big companies, they're so gargantuan where the different teams are not meeting each other often. They actually have no clue how they connect in the first place. But in a small company, every now and then, uh, the the creative folks and the technical folks do interact. And time and time again, they have the utmost disrespect for one another. Because the the graphics folks are looking at the engineers and they're thinking, look at these folks. These folks don't have any creativity. They're just robots. And the engineers are looking at the graphic folks saying, look at these guys. They don't have any frameworks. They're just going from raw inspiration. But if they could meet in the middle ground, what they will realize is that for these engineers, it's not just a robotic activity. Anyone that has coded before will tell you that it is a creative activity. You actually have to learn how to think. You have to learn how to talk to a computer to make the computer execute your moves. You need to play around. Wait a minute. Is this code too bulky? Or can I refine this code to make it go from 500 lines to 150 lines? All creative acts. And these artists, they're not just throwing a bunch of uh, paint into the wall and hoping to see what sticks. Instead, they conceptualize uh, the art beforehand. They create mock-ups, very similar to a lot of these engineers who create mock-ups of the code. So these artists are creating these mock-ups. They're fleshing out their ideas. They're polishing it up. And then they create the final output. Now, if you can understand this middle ground territory on how... um, technical fields have creativity and creative fields have technical details, the more that you will understand the perspective of artistic engineering. And I believe that these are the folks that get promoted because whenever I look at individuals and I see them complaining about not getting promoted, let's say they've been in the company for 15 to 20 years, they're like, I'm just not getting promoted. More often than not, they don't want to get promoted. I know a lot of individuals that are highly skilled and their managers are actually just looking to promote them. But these highly skilled individuals are like, look, I actually have a life. I'm not trying to dedicate my entire life around your company. I have a family, I have friends, I have a, a traveling interest and whatever. So these folks do not want to get promoted. But every now and then, a person does want to get promoted, but they just keep hitting the wall, right? And they're hitting the wall because they are either just an artist or they are just an engineer. They are not understanding that once you become the artistic engineer, the creative person with technical understanding and the technical uh, person with creativity, until you can become that, you are not bigger than the place that you are occupying. And when you are not bigger than the place that you are occupying, you are not going to get that promotion, okay? So I really believe a a way to ease yourself into the artistic engineering mindset is to understand, look, I'm an engineer right now. Let me at least acknowledge a lot of the creativity that I am doing. And in addition to that, I am going to find one creative field within my company, and I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to ask them what they do. And the more that I hear what they do, 
the more that I am going to learn that they are not strictly born from inspiration. Instead, they have technical understanding as well. And by speaking that new language, now I, the employee, have equipped myself with a new perspective in order to move up in the long run. That's what a lot of individuals are looking to do. I don't know if I brought up quiet hiring, by the way. In one of my past videos, I broke down quiet quitting. Uh, this is where a lot of uh, employees are not willing to go the extra mile uh, because they have other stuff to do with their lives. Uh, but there's another thing called quiet hiring. This is when uh, employers are giving uh, their employees additional work, okay? So rather than hiring someone from outside of the company, they're just giving more work to their current employees. So that's known as quiet hiring. And I was talking to one of my buddies recently who was uh, telling me a very funny story. He said that there was this 30-year-old coworker that he worked with. And this 30-year-old coworker was very skilled and he just lacked ambition to move up in the company. He was perfectly happy with where he was. One day, a senior manager hit up this uh, uh, this coworker, okay, and he uh, the senior manager gave the coworker some extra assignments to do, and the senior manager thought that was enough, right? Because since he has that authority, he could just give anyone uh, more work throughout the day, and they're going to do it. Not this coworker. This coworker said, "Hey, um, I already have enough work. I don't have time to do your work for you. So please uh, give that work to your own employees." And he wrote this via email. And the senior manager was somewhat startled. And no one had spoken back to him like that. So the senior manager said to the coworker, no, I want you to do it. And they just had this back and forth for some time. And eventually, this coworker said, look, I'm not going to do it. And, but here's what I will do. Now, I am going to CC my manager. And I'm going to see if he wants me to do your work. If he wants me to do your work, only then will I do it, okay? Other than that, you are wasting my time. And I couldn't believe it that this coworker who has been in the company for roughly six years is talking back to a guy that has been in the company for 36 years. When I was in the full-time grind, that was unheard of. There was this one time when I was in this internship where the longer that you are in the internship and when you're one of the final people left, only a few people are going to get a full-time offer. And I was one of the final people. So, so the people that were potentially going to give me and the final people the full-time offer were senior managers. So by the time that we got the full-time offer, even when we became employees within the company, not just interns, we just had that respect for these senior managers. We realized that the only reason that we're in this company is due to the senior managers. So whenever they would give us grunt work, sort of like this senior manager gave this uh, coworker, we do it without question. It didn't matter if it was Friday, 5.30 p.m. We would do that work even if we didn't leave the company till 9 p.m. But nowadays, I mean, a lot of these coworker-like archetypes are speaking back to their senior managers, and I have a few reasons as to why. 
The first reason is that quiet quitting is now a thing. A lot of people are not that ambitious for their current company. They're like, look, I just need a paycheck so I could actually live life. I'm not going to live a life being just a worker. That is not going to happen. So that is one reason. And I believe another reason, which is more profound, is the change in perception of resumes. Where before, if someone gave you a resume, and let's say you're a recruiter, uh, and you saw that within five years, they've been in a part of four different companies, that was seen as a red flag. You as a recruiter, the first thing your mind would say is, what the heck is with this guy? Why does he keep switching companies for? Why can't he stay in one company for a long period of time? But nowadays, if you're a recruiter and you see someone with um, four different jobs within five years, a lot of recruiters, the first thing that they think is, this person is skilled. This person has experience. This person has industry knowledge. So I think this coworker that was talking back to a senior manager was kind of like, I dare you, fire me or get involved in firing me because I'll just find another job. Because nowadays, oh, uh, there's things like LinkedIn, there's things like Indeed that allow for employees to hop into a recruiter's DMs and sweet talk them, okay? So I think that's why. I think due to the rise of quiet quitting and due to the rise of um, change of perceptions within moving jobs multiple times, that's why a lot of these uh, young employees are talking back to the senior managers. I just found that very funny. That was not something that was even a concept back in my time, which wasn't even that long ago. Seven years ago when I was entering the job market, it was different, very different. Another thing that was very different was work from home. Um, even dressing up, where there was this one lady named Sangeeta uh, who was an amazing employee. The only problem was that uh, we worked in Tampa, but she lived in Orlando. So she had to drive an hour and a half uh, to Tampa and back uh, every weekday. And this eventually began uh, to wear down Sangeeta. She was in her mid-40s or so. Uh, she had kids. I mean, this was not something that she was looking to do. So she asked to work from home. Uh, and the managers initially declined her. And eventually Sangeeta said, Okay, how about I work from home at least three days out of the week? I mean, I'm doing so much for the company already. I'm a subject matter expert for this particular system. Can't you please make it work? The managers said no. And not only no, if she even tried to do work from home again, uh, they were going to fire her, which she tried to push her luck, and she eventually got fired. So before, working from home was not a thing. And mind you, this was in IT. IT fields should be the first to be work from home because you could do everything from home. So the fact that Sangeeta, a top performer, got fired for wanting to work from home, and nowadays working from home is this mainstream concept, it's just baffling to me. A lot of things have changed, okay? Anyways, uh, there was this one point that I wanted to bring up, which was uh, sweet-talking. Uh, this coworker that was talking back to a senior manager, he talked back in a very harsh way, where every now and then that may work. Every now and then, I mean, you're trying to speak to someone and um, it's just not working in a way where uh, 
being sweet to them is, is going to happen. But every now and then, you do want to sweet talk them. And I'm going to talk, share how to sweet talk someone in a second. The reason why that uh, we want to learn sweet talking versus always being super assertive is because every now and then, we get these flashes of insight on how the world is not that big. The world is very small. You got to understand this the next time you're about to snap on someone. Uh, because uh, when I say the world is small, what I really mean is the world is very interconnected. So let's say you snap at your barista and you feel good at the moment. Well, the way that the life works is that one day you will see this barista again. Maybe you moved to a new location and this person happened to move as well. Or let's say you're about to, um, you finally found the one. Like this is going to be your life partner. This life partner somehow knows the barista. As soon as uh, the barista sees you again, she remembers that you're the one that yelled at her. So that's what I mean when I say that the world is small. I mean that it's very interconnected. And due to this understanding, I'm not saying never get mad. I'm just saying understand the world is small before you're about to get mad. And that's when we want to be sweet-talking every now and then. Now, sweet-talking uh, is what I view as activating honey. Like, you're going to catch more flies with a spoonful of honey than a gallon of vinegar, right? Uh, and the way we sweet-talk is we engage feminine energy more than masculine energy. When I think masculine energy, I think assertive, aggressive, bold, okay? When I think feminine energy, I think soft, nurturing, uh, and submissive, okay? Um, and we have to be able to engage both uh, energies depending on the circumstance. Now, if you watch TV shows, you get a little carried away. You, you think a person can just be masculine or just be feminine depending on what their uh, gender is. But in the complex game of life, we need to be able to adjust. This is my personal philosophy, of course. Some folks may say, no, no, that, that's stupid. But my personal philosophy is that you need to be able to adjust. And one situation when I can tell you that I had to adjust was one time I was getting my uh, car towed. And as I was getting it towed, I came at this tow truck uh, guy uh, with assertive, aggressive energy, masculine energy. And he came back at me with the same exact energy, masculine, bold energy. That's when I saw my poor little car on his tow truck, and I realized that I didn't want to spend $200 to get it back. So that's when I deactivated uh, the masculine energy, and I engaged the feminine energy. I was trying to be more understanding. I said, okay, okay, my bad. I actually see where you're coming from. You've been towing um, cars all day, and I'm sure a lot of people just came at you uh, sideways, right? Uh, and this guy is somewhat you know, nodding his head as though he's being understood. Then I was just like, Yo, my bad. And I, I didn't mean to come at you aggressively like that. I'm just struggling a little bit with money right now. I wasn't struggling with money. I, I'm just struggling with a little bit of money. Uh, can't you please help me out? And that's when he's like, sure. He put my car down. Now in this situation, due to this dynamic, one of us had to be a little bit more submissive in nature. One of us had to be softer in nature. If we were both being hardheads, then what would have happened was my car would have been towed and I just lost 200 bucks just like that. But me, 
I'm like, no, 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 I'm going to sweet talk this guy. And by me activating honey mode rather than vinegar mode, I was able to get my car down. So every now and then, when you're trying to sweet talk someone, you don't want to be super macho. When you're being super macho, that works in certain interactions. But if you're trying to sweet talk, you want to be able to switch modes. You want to disengage masculine energy just a little bit and engage feminine energy a little bit softer, a little bit shyer at times, more of a listener at times, absorbing rather than giving. Okay, that's a, a way to describe it. Absorb rather than give. So that's sweet talking 101. Uh, learn to switch modes, learn to turn off vinegar, activate honey, and you never know when you're going to need this skill set. Uh, this skill set actually requires a tamed ego because me um, sweet talking this tow truck guy, especially after he was trying to take my property, was not something that I was vibing with. So it hurt for me to tame my ego like that. But ultimately, when I got what I wanted, I started to go from hurt to satisfaction. So when you're sweet talking someone, you may want to exercise this when you're in a compromising position, when your back is against the wall. And when your back is against the wall, one of the first tendencies that we as men have is that we just want to go out swinging, right? But every now and then, us swinging is one of the dumbest things we can do. Instead, we just need to remember, hey, the world is smaller than I think. The world is more interconnected than I think. I may see this person again. So rather than me uh, going out swinging, how about I chill for a quick sec? I chill and I switch modes. I I turn down the masculine aggressiveness just a little bit, and I'm sweeter. I'm more understanding. And by doing that, I will get my way without creating an enemy in the process. So that's how uh, sweet talking works. There's a lot of different ways in order to use communication skills to build your empire. It's not only social skills. It's um, podcasting. It's writing. It's um Learning to make someone feel heard. These are a lot of the different skill sets that the Armani Talks newsletter covers. Uh, I'm ending today uh, with a promo. Okay, uh, so the Armani Talks newsletter is a uh, is a daily newsletter that uh, ranges from roughly 500 to 700 words. Sometimes you get logical breakdowns. Sometimes you get anecdotes. Sometimes you get a um, historical event, uh, just a lot of different things that I've noticed in my life that has allowed me to uh, work on my communication skills. I never claim to be perfect. I'm someone that is constantly working on it. And the tribe of the Armani Talks newsletter uh, readers has grown into thousands of people and uh, they're busy, right? They're busy. I mean, they have um, kids, they have a job, uh, they are ambitious in their own rights. So a lot of them, unfortunately, don't have the time to sit down and read for two hours a day. They could still read, right? They could still read a book for maybe 30 minutes, one hour. But what else, right? And that's where a lot of these busy individuals come to the Armani Talks newsletter. And they just spend roughly five to six minutes just reading a talk that will help them change their perspective in regards to communication skills. There are plenty of different ways to uh, learn communication skills, but the few that the Armani Talks brand focuses on includes public speaking, storytelling, 
emotional intelligence, creativity, level of mentality, and much more. So check out the Armani Talks newsletter uh, in the link in the description box, or you can go straight to armanitalks.com slash newsletter and sign up today, join the tribe. And if you enjoyed uh, this talk, be sure to catch me for the next episode of the Armani Talk show. It goes out the first day of every month. Happy August to you. And make sure you end this year strong because this year is almost over. Uh, thank you very much for joining the show and I will catch you next time.